how often I take misplaced delight, as you put it, in being lost. And you speak about working with this sense of weariness. Is it possible to think less? <laughs> I will have troublesome thought that constantly reoccurs. Do I note it over and over, or do I try to go into it and see what emotion or sensation I can pick up? So, the problem of thoughts. I think there are different approaches one can take in learning how to relate skillfully with this uh, process of mind, which is so prevalent. One is the simple understanding that as we strengthen the concentration factor, and that takes practice, and there are many different ways of practicing concentration, as the samadhi gets stronger, there is a diminishing of the number of thoughts that take over the mind. Not only do we get lost less and lost for less duration, uh, but the mind is actually stilled. And it's not that thoughts never come, but we really begin to have some sense of inner spaciousness, inner stillness, which is why over the course of these weeks there has been a fair amount of talk on the value and the importance of developing concentration, one-pointedness. And I think as Guy mentioned in his talk, we want to see this as a five-year project, you know, or maybe a ten-year project. It's interesting when I look back on my own practice, from day to day it's very hard to see any improvement, and maybe even week to week. Because there are so many ups and downs and so many uh, changing circumstances. But I think that perhaps even over the length of the time you've been here, but certainly over you know, many years of practice, what I've noticed is that even though there are many ups and downs, the slope of the curve is going up. You know? And so it's not that it's just a linear, one-directional movement. The level of concentration goes up and, up and down, but as we practice it more, the base level that we work with gets, we'd say, higher or stronger. And it might be helpful at times, you know, in, when, you, when you consider your meditative career, um, to take some time where you do a samadhi practice. You know, when I began sitting, I know all of this is possible. Because when I began sitting, I just thought all the time. I was not one of these people who, you know, these star yogis who kind of sit down and instant samadhi. I just would think. You know, I had studied philosophy at college and I just thought that's what I did. (laughs) And I enjoyed it. 
the first real breakthrough in in that came. I'd been doing some vipassana practice for a while and struggling a lot. Uh, the first time I did some intensive metta practice, uh, it really helped. I did it for about, I think the first time maybe it was two months. And just that focused samadhi practice you know, on metta, for me that was the first real taste of the mind getting still, of concentrated. Um, and so I know that it is actually possible for us to do this, even those of us with the most discursive minds. So that's one side, just really practicing at times, and even within the context of Vipassana, sometimes coming back and just being with the breath, you know, or your primary object, and staying on it, and training the mind to stay on it. The samadhi really diminishes the intensity and the prevalence of thought. Within the context of Vipassana practice, there's an attitude shift which is tremendously helpful. And it's really summed up in the teachings of Shinul, the Korean Zen master who I mentioned, I think, the other night. He said, Don't be bothered by your thoughts. Only take care lest your awareness of them is tardy. So we don't have to have an adversarial relationship with them. Suzuki Roshi also had a very uh, succinct expression for this. He also said, don't be bothered by your thoughts. Let them come and let them go. So if we don't create this adversarial relationship, we don't get into a struggle, we don't get into a fight with them, and rather than thinking about letting them go, which can imply something we have to do, I think the operative phrase, and a better phrase, would be, let them be. But let them be doesn't mean being lost in them. It means bringing awareness to them. Don't be afraid of your thoughts. Only take care lest your awareness of them is tardy. So how do we learn to be aware of our thoughts quicker? We can do this from two sides. We can do it from when you notice that you're carried away and lost a lot, you actually can approach it from the side of closer attention to the primary object, or to what you're noticing in the body. Because the closer attention you have to that, the easier and quicker you'll notice when the mind is off. From another side, and this is a technique which I've played with over the years, and I find, I find quite interesting. I call it the thought game. And in this particular way of practice, what you do is focus all of your attention on thoughts. Thoughts become your object. And so what I do is kind of sit back, close my eyes, and imagine that I'm in this movie theater. You know, and there's a screen that I'm watching, and I'm just waiting for thoughts to appear on the screen. You know, and sometimes they're really 
in big letters coming across, they're very obvious, sometimes they're just kind of whispers, very subtle ones. But because I'm waiting for the thoughts, in this particular exercise, not with the breath, not with sensations, not with the body, you're just sitting waiting for thoughts to come. Because you're waiting for them, it's much easier to pick them up just as they arise. But then the mind gets very tricky. It's like we're watching the screen out here, and the thoughts kind of creep up from behind. <laughs> yeah, and the thought, oh, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> so you need one of these 360-degree screens. What I find interesting about this is that we're actually taking the thought to be the object of our mindfulness, of our investigation. So we're not seeing it as a problem. And in fact, we become delighted when they arise because that's what we're waiting for. And it gets very interesting then because it shows us more and more clearly, experientially, not theoretically, just the nature of thought. Because all of our attention is focused on it and we're picking them up quite quickly because we're waiting for them really begin to see very, very directly that just the ephemeral, empty, insubstantial nature of them. So we learn to take interest in thought as a phenomenon rather than being lost so much in the particular content or story. The phenomenon of thought is much more interesting than the content of thought. Particularly after you've listened to the same content 10,000 times. (laughs) So that's my advice with regard to thought. One is the development of samadhi as a way of calming the mind and calming that function. And the other is by the direct looking, the direct investigation, where all of your attention is on the thought process. How can we make sure or know that we are not creating more suffering or increasing our suffering when we meditate? When we're mindful, do we suffer less or just know that we suffer? The Buddha, is suppo- <laughs> the Buddha is supposed to have said, the problem with you bhikkhus is that you do not see suffering. We see suffering, yet are not liberated. What is the missing ingredient? Could you say something about the relationship between the notion of deconditioning defilement slowly through long practice versus uprooting them by means of concentration and deep levels of insight? How do these aspects work together in practice? So how do we know that we're not simply creating more suffering by being here? (laughs) There's one measure of the practice, and this is true 
I think of all the Buddhist traditions and probably other spiritual traditions as well, but certainly within the various Buddhist traditions. And it's something that we can really know for ourselves. Is there a diminishing over time of greed and hatred and ignorance in our mind? Or is there a growth of greed, hatred, and delusion? Now, one of the tricky parts is that often when we practice, we become more aware of the greed, hatred, and delusion that's actually there. So it may seem as if, like the practice is just creating all of these defilements, it's much more likely, and this you can check out over time, much more likely that the mindfulness, the awareness, is revealing these very deep-seated patterns of mind. Now it's revealing the defilements. And so then the question is, how are we relating in the moment to the defilements that are present? To the greed, to the anger, to the fear, to the pride, whatever it may be. The suffering comes about when we become identified, as you well know, when we become identified with these forces in the mind. If we're able to sit back and watch the unfolding process, it's actually a purifying, it's a purifying process. It's coming up and out, up and out, up and out. Ajahn Chah talked about two kinds of suffering. Suffering that leads to more suffering and suffering that leads to the end of suffering. So the suffering that leads to more suffering happens when we get caught up and identified and reactive and judgmental. And I'm sure you've seen this countless times. You know, a judgmental thought comes. We get identified with it then we judge ourselves for getting identified. And then we judge ourselves for judging. And (laughs) that's suffering that leads to more suffering. You know, it's just we're getting caught in this cycle. Judging thought comes in the mind. We're mindful, we're aware, we see it, we're not identified with it. It's not a problem. And so I think over the years of our practice, we really want to see what has been the effect in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives, in our relationships. I mean, that's how we'll know, and that's, that's the self-assessment. And the Buddha himself recom- recommended this. You know, in the famous Kalama Sutta, when people asked him, how do we know who to believe? It's all these different teachings. He said, try it out and see what happens. Does it weaken these forces in the mind? Does it strengthen these forces? And then we know for ourselves it's not a question of belief. The question of the slow wearing down of the defilements versus the sudden uprooting them through deep concentration and insight, I think it's a parallel process. There's one 
interesting phenomenon. And I don't know whether anybody has talked about it yet. Um, it has to do with the understanding of latent defilements. Has that been mentioned? It's Well, I'll mention it again anyway, <laughs> even if it has. Uh, you know, very often our minds are in a pretty good space. Through our practice, we're not... It's not moments of anger, it's not moments of greed, and we're calm, and we're mindful, and we're aware. And so that is the, that is the gradual diminishing of the force of the defilement, you know, through sustaining those periods. But still there's something called a latent defilement, which means it's not present in the moment, but the potential for it has not been uprooted. So, given the right circumstances, that can arise. You know, in a, in a very uh, graphic way, we know about this through so many stories of people, just ordinary folk, who, you know, in times of war, go off to war, and then in rather horrendous conditions, find themselves doing things that in their normal lives they would never do. But because the latent defilement is still in the mind, given the right conditions, it can come forth. What's interesting to me about that is just what, what, how do you say, where is it? You know, what does it mean? Just the whole idea of something being latent but not actually present. As we, as we look into our minds, it's quite a fascinating notion, which is borne out in our experience. I mean, we see that happen again and again. We're going along very peacefully and then something happens. You know, we get full of anger or rage or whatever. But what is it in the mind that is still remaining that gives birth to that defilement when the conditions are ripe. So it just becomes a very interesting investigation of well, what is the nature of the mind and what is that force which comes into being at that time. And of course the ground, the basis of it, is ignorance. I think Steve is going to be talking about that next week a lot. The power of the sudden insight, you know, and we call it in in the Theravada tradition, the stages of enlightenment, is when the latent defilements are uprooted stage by stage. So on the one hand, in our practice, we're gradually weakening them. And then in that moment of, you could call it sudden, sudden insight, sudden awakening, you know, where it really cuts to the very depth, touches the unconditioned, that has the power to uproot. So that be- those become very powerful moments. An image, which is described a lot for this wearing away and then breaking of the defilements, is of a boat tied to a dock. And the rope tying the boat to the dock is uh, lying in the water. 
And just by being in the water, slowly it's rotting away. You know, and so the strands of the rope get get more rotten, rotted away until finally they break. So in every moment of mindfulness, we're actually weakening the strands, and then in those moments of clear, transforming insight, they're broken. And the great power of full awakening is that, as it said, I've heard rumor of, that all the, all the defilements have been uprooted so that they don't arise again. What are these guardian deities referred to in the metta chant? What do they do and how can we get in touch with them? <laughs> How does the function of prayer operate in the Brahma-vihara practices, considering the absence of any external or larger frame of reference, such as deity or source of blessings or power? What is grace? I think we can understand this... um, on several different levels. Certainly within the Buddhist cosmology, you know, there are all of these 31 planes of existence, and there are, there are beings in higher realms, in deva realms, some of whom are said to be pretty close to the human plane, and some are quite removed from it. For those devas who have practiced the Dharma, you know, and who, who are practicing the Dharma even in those realms, it's said that they have tremendous connection, you know, tremendous appreciation of the Dharma, of the practice. And so people who are practicing they're, they're actually drawn to, to, to places and situations where people are practicing. When you read the suttas, it's quite beautiful. Often, you know, it's said how these devas would illuminate the sky at night coming to see the Buddha and get teachings. Uh, and there are certain beings who can see these devas, you know, who have, it's almost like, you know, being able to tune in to a very high frequency. You know, and some people have the capacity of mind to do that. And I've been told that not only here, but in many places where the Dharma is being practiced, that people who can actually see these beings see many, many, many of these beings sort of hovering around, hearing the teachings. Be happy. <laughs> and they, as it said in, you know, in, in the traditional teachings, that they, they actually exert a beneficent influence. You know, it's, and it's, it's not hard to imagine. You know, when, if you've had the, situ- the situation or this, 
the experience of being with some really great teachers, you know, somebody like the Dalai Lama or Deepama or beings very highly realized, there is an amazing, you know, you're just in their presence and their energy permeates you. It's very powerful, just as when we're in the presence of somebody who's tremendously angry or rageful, we feel that. But we also feel the tremendous loving energy and peaceful energy. So when these beings, when these devas are attracted to where we are through our practice, it is a very... uh, it's a very powerful force. It's said that the affinity with the devas happens through the practice of generosity, through the practice of sila, you know, of ethical conduct, uh, that the scent of those virtues you know, attracts, uh, attracts the devas. So what is the place, what is the role of prayer in Buddhism? In the Theravada tradition, mostly the chanting is a recitation of the teachings. It's not so much prayer in the sense that we understand it, of you know, praying to another being, blessings. In the Tibetan tradition, prayer plays a pretty powerful uh, role. And when I started doing a little of the Tibetan practice and doing the Tibetan prayer, I was not initially very connected with that. You know, it just wasn't something I did very much. But as I got into the practice a bit, I began to appreciate the power of it. And it was a way of opening, for me, it was a way of opening a heart-mind just to whatever beings, whatever forces are out there. And it might be teachers that we've had, great teachers, or all the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas, or, or just... Dharma beings out there, and we simply open ourselves to their energy. So I'd like to read this just as an example of a kind of Dharma prayer. Uh, This is just one example, There, there are many. This is from the Tibetan tradition says, I call on you, my teachers, regard me with compassion. I sincerely wish to receive your blessings. Please bless me with the resolve to attain realization. Please bless me to have a steady and smooth mind, so that for this life and those to follow, the special intention to help others is spontaneously present. May I be able to benefit measureless beings. You may have noticed that it wasn't a request for a new Mercedes. 
it really, you know, when we, when we just open ourselves kind of to the mystery of Dharma energy, there's a lot that we can't necessarily see with our eyes. You know, we may not have a direct experience of, but it's very powerful, it was for me, just to begin to practice in that way. And the prayer becomes really a request for blessings of what we most aspire to, our highest aspirations. And it's an aligning, really, of our aspiration, of our heart, of our practice, of our intention. It's powerful. It has, it has a powerful effect. On another level yet, this is still within the realm of duality. It's still, yes, I as a practitioner am opening myself and asking for the blessings of, of these great Dharma beings. But on another level, we can come to a place of realization where it's not dualistic, where we see that it's not so much me here and beings out there, but we're really using prayer to open ourselves to the very nature of the Dharma, of our own minds. And this was expressed very beautifully in a, by Mother Teresa, you know, when somebody asked her what she does when she prays, she said, I don't do anything. When she said, what she does when she prays to God, and she said, I don't do anything, I just listen. And then the interviewer asked her, well, what does God say to you? And she said, and this is her use of pronoun, he doesn't say anything, he just listens. And if you don't understand this, I can't explain it. You know, and it was really beautiful. It was just, just listening. You know? Listening, listening to listening. It's just listening to the silence, opening to the silence, opening to the nature of awareness. So that becomes, in a way, the highest kind of prayer. Grace happens, I think, when we're in this place of openness. And whether it's happening, whether the insight or the understanding or the wisdom we see as coming from the blessings of others or coming from our own paramis, we're just open to the kind of immensity of the Dharma. Trungpa Rinpoche, with his usual cutting through clarity when he was asked about grace. This was in the first summer of Naropa in 1974 when he and Ramdas were leading these big classes on alternate nights. And Ramdas was teaching about the Bhagavad Gita. You know, and so there was a lot of devotion, a lot of talk of grace. Somebody asked Trungpa, you know, well, what's grace in the Buddhist tradition? He said with great incisiveness, he said, patience is grace. You know, and I think 
he really nailed it. Because patience is that quality of mind which makes us receptive. In the Buddha, in the Pali text, patience leads to Nibbana. You know, it's a powerful, it's a powerful quality of mind that keeps us open. Does there exist any other kind of karma than personal one we inherited and continue to create? That means karma of a family, ethical group, or a people, and how to deal with it. I am German and feel so much shame and remorse about the misdeeds of my people in Nazi times. There is something in the teachings about collective karma. the karma of a group. But it's said that we share in collective karma when we assent to or agree to what the collective is doing. That that's what binds us to the collective karma. And so we may find ourselves, and I think all of us find ourselves the situation today, uh, you know, where things are done in our larger collective, which we might think is quite unskillful, the karma we create or don't has to do with the degree to which we identify with it, agree with it, ascend to it, give energy to it. I think the way of working... with feelings that may arise. I mean, in that situation, for example, where it might not have had anything to do with the action at all. Perhaps we're not even born at the time. I think the freedom really comes from going beyond the concept, going beyond the concept of nationality. When you're sitting, watching your breath, you know, is your breath German or American or Swiss? Or It's a concept. We, we create a concept. When we are just on the level of moment-to-moment experience, that story that we make up about ourselves and about our nationality and about our even our gender or our race. Now, all of that on some level is a mental construct. So if we, in fact, have not participated in or agree with or have given energy to unskillful acts of some larger group, I think when we free ourselves from the concept, the mental construct, we can really come to a place of ease. It's really looking at our own motivation, the quality of our own heart. There were a whole bunch of questions on questions about various traditions and how to hold them. And so 
those. Some of us come from traditions which have the relationship with God as the core of spirituality and are working to reframe that relationship from a non-dualistic perspective. Did the Buddha give any teachings about how non, the non-dualistic existence was created, or whether it has a divine nature to its essence? As you talked about in one dharma, how do we hold all of the beliefs and make sense of them in Buddhist teachings? My question is, how do we hold a belief in Christianity or Judaism and a Buddhist practice, or even be a Buddhist and Christian? How do all of these beliefs mesh and do some contradict each other? Soul, heaven, hell. You said the attachment to consciousness and awareness is another subtle trap. Do you mean the clinging to our concept of awareness? Also, you quoted Ramana Maharshi. Do you think, or better do you think the Buddha would think, that Ramana was clinging to awareness? Because this is his teaching, Ramana, is that pure awareness is the self of who you are. Why Vipassana and Theravada, when it seems like all the Vipassana teachers have moved on to different lineages of the Tibetan tradition, especially when hearing Steve saying that the different Buddhist paths don't lead to the same destination. (laughs) So this is a big question, and... It's actually a question, as probably many of you know, that I tried to deal with in uh, my recent book, One Dharma, because it was just this question that was actually driving me to distraction. First, just to clarify one simple point, I don't think it's at all a question. I don't really know of any of uh, the teachers who have moved on you know, from Vipassana to some other teaching. It's not how uh, I understand it or see it at all. Certainly, I think we all share this tremendous uh, rootedness in the basic teachings of the Buddha. And actually, all the traditions of Buddhism share in that the basic teachings of the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths. And this is, this is the core, and this is what we practice. An interesting phenomenon which has been happening in the West is that really for the first time in many, many centuries, the different traditions are meeting with each other. You know, in Asia they've been very isolated Tibetans have almost no idea of what's taught in Burma or Thailand. And Thais or Burmese have no idea of Zen Buddhism because the cultures have been so isolated. Here, you know, in the West, all of these traditions are funneling in and many people are learning from, hearing the teachings, even practicing in different traditions. 
So how to make sense of this and how to hold this in a constructive way rather than in a way that's confusing. Just give a simple example of uh, some months ago I was at a Buddhist Christian conference at Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky which is where uh, Thomas Merton had lived. And there were 25 Buddhists and 25, mostly, uh, it was mostly monastics, both Christian and Buddhist, uh, Trappist and Benedictine orders. And it was very interesting, when people were talking metaphysical doctrine, there was kind of a lot of differences. When people were talking values, there was so much in common. When we were talking about the value, holding the value of love, holding the value of compassion, holding the value of wisdom, of service. Of and it was just a very good lesson in about the level on which we get into conflict when we start comparing all of these traditions and the level on which it is really possible to harmonize many of the teachings. And one of the principles that I came to in my own understanding of this was the realization that teachings, even the most profound teachings, are not statements of some ultimate truth. That all the teachings are skillful means this skillful means for liberation. When we understand teachings as being skillful means, then it's quite possible to hear the teachings expressed this way. Does this help? Is this an actual skillful method, skillful means to liberate the mind? Hear a teaching from this side. Does this help or not? There are many different fingers pointing at the moon doesn't matter that the fingers are different if we actually are looking at the moon. But if we keep being attached to the finger, then there will be conflict. For different people at different times in their practice, different skillful means will be effective. And for the same person at different times in their practice. So then we could ask skillful means for what? And here maybe different religious traditions would have different answers. Within the schools of Buddhism, and as I've mentioned in, in one of the talks, all of the, all of the schools converge in the understanding that what liberates the mind is non-clinging. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. There is not a single Buddhist tradition that says cling. <laughs> and so then at one point I asked this Tibetan uh, teacher, he's one of the teachers of the three-year retreat in France, I said, would you, would you say that the nature of Rigpa, 
which is the Tibetan word for, say, free awareness or the nature of mind, would you say that non-clinging is the essence of it? And he said, yes, but he had one, one addition. He said that the essence of this nature of mind, or Rigpo, or free awareness, is non-clinging suffused with compassion. And I thought that was quite a beautiful bringing together of some different strands. And for us to see in our own practice how compassion is the expression of emptiness. When we're free of self-centeredness, when we're not holding to that self-centered, when we're free of self-reference, there is the natural responsiveness, the natural compassionate responsiveness to situations because we're not protecting anything, we're not defending anything. And so for me, I think it's very important to be rooted and trained in a single tradition. Because if people are jumping around from one to another without getting depth in any one of them, it can really be confusing. And it's not, I think, a very good strategy. But once there is an understanding, once we have really come to a foundation of understanding in our own practice, and there isn't confusion, there really is a deep understanding, then I think we can learn from aspects of different traditions in very skillful ways. As an example, one of the pieces that was so meaningful to me, which became synthesized into my practice of vipassana, was the whole Tibetan teaching on bodhicitta, which we've spoken about a lot. Now, in Theravada teachings, it's there. The bodhicitta, the value is there, but it's not articulated as much. It's not emphasized as much as in the Tibetan teachings. So having practiced for 25, 30 years in Vipassana and then hearing the bodhicitta teachings, there was no conflict there. That was just kind of pulling out or highlighting something you know, that could fit so well. And this is how I see, if we're not holding to teachings as being statements of some ultimate truth, but all the skillful means, and we're really well grounded in our understanding, then we say, you know, okay, is this teaching, is this helpful? Is this teaching helpful? I heard from one Tibetan, very senior Tibetan translator, that in over 20 years of Tibetan practice, he had had not come across in any of the teachings as explicit instructions for the Brahma-viharas as is found in the Vasudhimaga. So does that mean, well, they shouldn't practice the Brahma-vihara, it's not in their tradition in that way. You know, it doesn't make sense. It's like we can incorporate elements uh, without conflict.
one of the dangers as we as we open to different practices once if we choose there's no there's certainly no need to you know, because each one i think is goes to liberation goes to awakening but if we choose to one of the dangers is not confusing vocabulary because different traditions use often the same word in different ways. So we actually have to see what the word refers to in one of the questions. How do I, how do I be a Christian and a Buddhist? You know, Christians believe in God. Buddhists don't have a God belief. Well, what do we mean by God? Now, even within Christianity, there's a huge spectrum of understanding of what's meant by that term. We don't want to be misled by the concept. And in this light, I want to read a little story which somebody wrote. What it turns out this wasn't a question, it was just a little story about the danger of being attached to concepts. In the course of remodeling our house, work was done underneath the house. Soon afterwards, the sounds of baby birds could be heard, chirping away at random times. We were delighted, although there was never a visual sighting. One morning I looked up from outside the house and I saw a blue heron on our chimney. It was obviously the mother. We had blue heron babies nesting underneath our house few exclamation points. This was great. A few days later, the chirping happened while our contractor was with us. The sound was noticed. Your smoke detector needs a new battery, he told us. (laughs) We very soon got rid of the irritating noise. You know, the different traditions use different words, they use different concepts, we get attached to this one is right, this one is the best, this one is the highest. No, this one is... They are all just concepts. And we have to see for ourselves, they are skillful means. So instead of fighting over, no, the awakened mind is like this, no, it's like this, instead of fighting over the concepts, because the concepts are just pointing to something. What are they pointing to? The mind of no clinging suffused with compassion. Does a particular teaching help us realize that? Or doesn't it? It's that simple. So what is the next question is what is the nature of mind? Now nature of mind is a is a phrase that's found in a lot of the Dzogchen teachings. So I thought 
rather than make something up myself, I would just read to you a very beautiful description, very clear from one of the great masters of the last century, Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche, where he said, mind has no form, no color, and no substance. This is its empty aspect. Mind has no form, no color, and no substance. This is its empty aspect. Yet mind can know things and perceive an infinite variety of phenomena. This is its clear aspect. The inseparability of these two aspects, emptiness and clarity, is the primordial continuous nature of mind. At present, the natural clarity of your mind is obscured by delusions. But as the obscuration clears, you will begin to uncover the radiance of awareness until you reach a point where just as a line traced on water disappears the moment it is made, your thoughts are liberated the moment they arise. When awareness reaches its full extent, the ramparts of delusion will have been breached, and the citadel of the absolute, beyond meditation, can be seized once and for all. The inseparability of emptiness and awareness. There's a lot more that could be said about, you know, how the different traditions express their understanding of this absolute or ultimate nature. Remember that they're just words pointing to an experience. And we need to practice for ourselves, and then we'll know. And the practice... that we do is the practice of non-clinging. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. So in that place of not clinging to anything as I or mine, how do we describe it? Just to give you an indication of the many ways it can be described, even within the Theravada tradition. These are all out of the canon, all out of the Pali canon, describing this ultimate nature. The unfashioned, the true, the subtle, the ageless, permanence, the undecaying, the featureless, peace, the deathless, the exquisite, bliss, solace, the exhaustion of craving, the wonderful, the marvelous, the secure, nibbana, the unafflicted, the passionless, the pure, non-attachment, the island, shelter, harbor, refuge, the ultimate, 
These are all words the Buddha used in different contexts to describe the nature of the free mind. It's bliss. No, it's peace. No, it's the island. No, it's the shelter. (laughs) Attachment to view is a tremendous obstacle. Attachment to concept. After all these years of practice and teaching, what inspires you most in your practice today? What gives you the greatest happiness? That's next week's talk. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.